Thank you for downloading this sermon from Holy Trinity Reformed Church. If you live in the vicinity of Mooresville, Indiana, come join us as we rebuild Christ's Holy Church out of the ash heaps of American fundamentalism and evangelicalism through repentance, revival, and reformation. If you would like more information about Holy Trinity Reformed Church, or if you do not live in our area but would like to support this ministry, please visit our website at reformedholytrinity.org. So Galatians chapter 6, we're going to begin reading in verse number 1. Notice now as Paul begins to conclude his letter to the churches at Galatia, he is now turning towards a specific application out of all the things that we have went through beginning in chapter 1 till now. And now he's turning to a specific application. And notice what he says. Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But let each one examine his own work, and then he will have rejoicing in himself alone and not in another. For each one shall bear his own load. Let him who is taught in the word share in all good things with him who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption, but he who sows to the Spirit will of the Spirit reap life everlasting. And let us not grow weary while we're doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we're finally back to Galatians after a break. A short break that ended up being nearly a month, uh, pretty close to it anyway. But we're back in the book of Galatians, and we're ready to begin chapter 6, which at first glance may look like we will finish quickly, right? But I wouldn't count on it. I have this sneaky feeling that it may take us all the way up till Advent. So that's another month away, a little over a month. And so I suspect we'll probably be here for that period of time. Hopefully, I'm more worried about concluding it before Advent. Uh, So I don't know if we can get through the rest of this book, the last chapter, in the course of a month or not, because we're really going to be bogged down here in the first uh, part of this chapter, and because there's a lot actually going on here. And... It is the conclusion to Paul's letter, and this conclusion is threefold. First, there is Paul's exhortation to the ministry of reconciliation. Yeah, it's what the church is actually all about. What did Jesus Christ come to do? To reconcile man back to God, right? The mission of the church is the ministry of reconciliation. 
But that's not for us today, right? Not, not us evangelicals. No way. That sounds a little Romanish. We're not going to do that. But it's actually what we've been called to. It's the ministry of the church. Reconciliation. Isn't that the message of the gospel? To repent and turn back to the Lord? Be reconciled to the Lord? So, first, there's Paul's exhortation to the ministry of reconciliation. And this is where we're going to get bogged down. Is discussing this ministry of reconciliation. And then second, his plea for a Christ-centered worldview. And then third, his blessings and benediction. Now this morning, we're going to be looking at the ministry of reconciliation. And I think it's... (laughs) We're going to be introducing... Uh, this subject concerning the ministry of reconciliation here in the first part of this chapter. And I think it is a fitting topic for this month where we celebrate the anniversary of Holy Trinity Reformed Church, nine years now. The month we celebrate joining Evangel Presbytery, three years. The month we celebrate the Protestant Reformation, 505 years. That's a pretty good long time, 505 years. And so, we're going to be focused upon this topic, the ministry of reconciliation. It's a topic, and we have a lot of these topics, don't we? We could probably, every time we just open our mouths, we could start off with this statement. It is a subject that is neglected today. Well, the ministry of reconciliation is a subject that is neglected today for many different reasons. And it is neglected for one ultimate reason, and that is because we do not love each other as we ought. We don't have a love for Christ, we don't have a love for the church, and we don't have a love for sinners. And so, we're not interested in reconciliation. I mean, we're not working towards that end. And I know that reconciliation is not always possible. But we should be at least working towards it. But we don't today. That's the reason why so many families are just shattered and split apart, right? Because we don't don't believe in reconciliation. We're not working towards reconciliation. And so here, after we go through all the things in relation to this letter, this epistle that Paul wrote to the churches of Galatia, the letter begins with a rebuke. I mean, and he comes out of the gate hard. He didn't even come out this hard after the Corinthian church. Remember when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that church? And every time, are you the same way? I don't know. Every time I read the book of Corinthians, it's just amazing that they're a church. It's amazing that they're considered to be brethren. I mean, that church was messed up. I mean, it was really messed up. Well, the thing is, is that even in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul didn't come out punching them in the nose right off the bat like he did with the churches of Galatia. I mean, Paul is accusing them of apostasy. 
warning them about apostasy. And so he begins this letter with a rebuke to the heresy that was shattering the peace and unity of those churches located in that province called Galatia. And the churches were in a dangerous state because of the heresy in their midst. And what was this heresy? Well, simply, the heresy was this, that sinners are justified with the cooperation of their works. So in other words, by the works of the law, they help save themselves. They help justify themselves. That's in the very least either cooperative, or even worse, would be a full-fledged understanding and um, affirmation that they are justified entirely by their works. But how can this be when all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, right? Because the natural, uh, because um, nature and the curse of sin was imputed to mankind, it was infused in him, and it's fulfilled in us because of original sin. Paul is arguing that the only hope for true and effectual salvation is to be justified in grace alone, by faith alone, through Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Seems backwards in our kind of thinking. But basically... Paul is saying that the works of the law will not liberate them. It will not liberate them because they're in bondage to sin. So, works will not liberate you from your sinful condition. Actually, it will only serve to keep them under the dominion of sin. This is the reason why we say that the only way to be liberated from the dominion of sin, from the bondage of sin, is by free grace. Actually, if you try to liberate yourself from the bondage of sin and the dominion of sin, by reforming yourself to become a better person, it will only enslave you further in your sin. That seems backwards to us, doesn't it? But it is true. Only the work of the Holy Spirit can free us from the dominion of sin. And so this heresy will only cause them to walk in the flesh and as a result fulfill the deeds of the flesh, which is only to sin. So notice, there's three things. We're not going to notice all three things this morning, but we're going to notice the first thing, barely. And that is, first of all, the communion in conflict. And then secondly... We'll be considering the classification of conflict and the considerations about conflict. But today we're really only going to focus upon one thing in understanding the communion that they possessed in the conflict. And that is, and I've waited my whole life to do this. I've heard other preachers do it. We're going to focus on one word. (laughs) And that one word... You know, we're not even going to be able to make it through the whole verse. We're not going to get past the first word. That one word is brethren. 
Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Don't you find it amazing and wonderful at the same time that in the midst of the conflict that we have uncovered here in this epistle, that Paul can write these words to them, brethren. After he began this letter by saying, I am really scared to death of you because you are turning from Christ and you're turning to a false doctrine and anyone who turns from Christ and pronounces faith in a false doctrine, let them be accursed. And then here he's like, brethren. After he talks about, in Galatians chapter 2, how that this came to a head with Peter. And how that when Peter came to Antioch, Paul says, I withstood him to his face because he was to be blamed. Why was he to be blamed? Because he was walking in hypocrisy. Because of this heresy that was going around. But yet, here, at the end of the chapter, he says, brethren. He's pleading with them. But this is an endearing term. Isn't it? I mean, just just the expression of such by saying, brethren. Isn't that a proclamation that they are endeared to him? And that he loves them. Today, we can't, we can't do with that. You know, it's like, if, if there's a rebuke or a condemnation in there anywhere, or if we can perceive one, or if we can feel one, then it's not loving. But yet, Paul's rebuked them, condemned them. Why? Because he loved them. See, love is not just sugar and spice and everything nice. True love is helpful. If someone is driving down a road where the bridge is out, is it loving to let them go ahead and drive through to their death? Or is it loving to warn them not to proceed in that direction? What's the loving thing to do? The loving thing is to warn them. Because there's serious concern here. But today, that's the thing that we cannot put up with, right? Everything has to be Soft and gentle and meek and lowly. Thinking that those words somehow by themselves being applied in any way we want to apply them is Christ-like. But it's not. There are times where rebuke is necessary and we have seen that here in this epistle. But yet... 
Paul is not rebuking them for their hurt. He's rebuking them for their better. He loves them. And so he says, brethren. We see this word used throughout Scripture. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of times. I think of... Abraham's statement to Lot in Genesis chapter 13. Remember there was conflict between the house of Abraham or Abram at that time and the house of Lot and their servants. And Abram says to Lot, please let, remember Lot was his nephew and he says, please let there be no strife between you and me and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen for we are brethren. What's he saying by using that term brethren there? That there is an endearment, that there is a love, that he is wanting what is best for him. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, remember the churches there in Corinth that were so chaotic and in such disarray. All kinds of things. I mean, from terrible immorality to heresy. I mean... They had a man in their church who was fornicating with his mother-in-law. They were desecrating the sacrament of the Lord's table. I mean, there was serious error and problems here in this church, but Paul begins his letter to the Corinthians by saying, Now I plead with you, brethren, You know, with the Galatians, it was a little bit more in your face. Like when he withstood Peter even to his face. In the Corinthians, he starts off in the beginning with a plea. I plead with you, brethren. That is a statement that is full of affection. And what was he pleading with them about? He says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Paul uses the word brethren 28 times in that first letter. 28 times. He uses it in one place in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where he is rebuking them. And he's rebuking them because they're going to the civil courts, suing each other, dragging each other into court. And he asks them, like, why wouldn't you just rather be wronged than bringing all this shame and reproach upon Christ and upon one another? said, you do wrong and you defraud and you do it even to your own brethren. Think of that. Is it wrong to do wrong? Yes. Is it wrong to defraud? And Paul says this. Not only are you doing wrong, not only are you defrauding, but you're doing it to your brethren. Making a distinction that that's even worse. Why? 
Because you ought to have a love for your brethren that exceeds your love generally. Those whom you are to be affectionately bonded with, your brethren. There's even a higher standard. And he says, so even do this to your brethren. And here in Galatians 6, verse 1, he uses that word. After going through five chapters of conflict and confrontation. And then, now that he's going to make application on what they need to do to resolve all the conflict, to resolve all the heresy, he begins that application by saying, brethren. But what does the word brethren even mean? You see, the intent of the meaning is actually found here in the text. So I'm not going to open a dictionary at this moment. I just want you to look here in Galatians chapter 6. And look in the very first verse when he says, Brethren. And then he says, If a man is overtaken in a fault, you who are spiritual, restore such a one. This affectionate term, brethren. The contextual meaning he has here is that that word brethren would have an affection for one another where they would seek to restore one another. That word restore in the Greek comes from a word that has a meaning in relation to like a bone or a shoulder being out of socket and restoring to be put back in place. Brethren. You see... Many times, and over the years, I mean, we've many times had this attitude when it comes to this passage of Scripture. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, yeah, those sinners over there, those people over there that are doing this and they're doing that, and I'm thankful I'm not like them. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault... You who are spiritual, and of course that's talking about me. And our focus is always in that realm, but notice there's more being said here when it comes to those who are supposed to restore the one overtaken in a fault. Notice it says, brethren, if you, you who are Joined together, you who are bonded together. When one becomes out of place, put it back in place. The emphasis here is not upon who is overtaken and who is spiritual, because listen, it will come around throughout the course of your Christian life where you'll be both. It's going to come a time in every Christian's life where they're going to be the one who's overcome. And someone's going to need to restore them. The emphasis is not upon the distinction between those who are overcome and those who are not. 
The intention here in relation to the word brethren is to be joined together, to be one, to be united. And when one is out of place, put it back in its place. And then notice in verse 2, bear one another's burdens. Brethren. If you are brethren, restore each other. Be reconciled. Be reconciled to Christ. Be reconciled to one another. That's the whole purpose of 1 John, right? We read it earlier in our corporate confession of sin, or our call to confession. Be reconciled. If you're brethren, be reconciled. If you are brethren, bear one another's burdens. In other words, he's, it's a challenge. If you love one another, restore one another, be reconciled. If you love one another, bear one another's burdens. You see, the intention here of this word brethren and its use is to demonstrate and display love and affection that we should have one towards another. And how much affection and love should we have? In Deuteronomy chapter 15, this was the command to the children of Israel. If there is among you a poor man of your brethren within the gates of your land which the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother. It's the same thing we see in Acts chapter 2 where it talks about all the Christians believing and they were together. Not out of place, but they were together. They were not divided, they were together. They were not separated, they were together. And they had all things common. They weren't selfish. And it says that they sold their possessions and good and parted them to all men as every man had need. And then they continued one with another. Why? Because they were brethren. Because there was a need. Because they had a love and affection one for each other. But today, we look at it differently, right? But we need to be reminded. Just in this simple use of the word brethren, we need to be reminded that hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. In other words, true love, to love the brethren, it's not excusing of sin, it's the reconciling of those who are in sin. Love covers all sins. You see, Solomon also said, he that covers a transgression seeks love, but he that repeats a matter separates friends. In Proverbs 16, an ungodly man digs up evil and his lips, and in his lips there is a burning fire. Proverbs 28, 25, he that is of a proud heart stirs up strife, but he that putteth his trust in the Lord shall be made fat. 
Proverbs 29, 22, an angry man stirs up strife and a ferocious man, a furious man, I'm sorry, a furious man abounds in transgression. Now, we're not talking about righteous indignation. We're not talking about the necessity of reproving. We're not talking about opposing sin. We're talking about not having love for the brethren. To truly see us as brethren. To see ourselves as one. To see ourselves united in kinship through Jesus Christ. Through the blood of Jesus Christ. James says, where do wars and fightings come from among you? He says, they come even of the lusts that war in your members. Isn't that the description of the church today? Hatred, division, and strife. But Paul told the Corinthian church that love suffers long, love is kind, love doesn't envy, love doesn't, and I love the King James word, vaunt itself. Which means this, boast itself, parades itself. Oh my goodness, isn't that the description of our culture and generation today? It parades itself, especially every June, right? Every June, it parades itself. But our whole society is one big parade. It flaunts, it struts. In other words, that's a description of a drag queen, right? Is that what a drag queen does? Boast, parade, flaunt, strut? But true love doesn't do that. What does true love do? James says, He who covers the sinner or converts the sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death, and he shall hide. A multitude of sins. It's just a reminder. Here, as we have been going through the book of Galatians with all the conflict and all the controversy, all the arguments and the debates and the fighting, it's a reminder that there was a purpose for it. And the purpose wasn't to show each other up, the purpose was not to destroy one another. The purpose here, as Paul's pointing out, was to restore one another. To restore the peace and unity of the church. That must be our disposition. That must be our attitude. It must be our goal. It must be our purpose. We have come to the point in Protestant Christianity that we deny this is the ministry of the church. The ministry of the church is actually reconciliation. One such way is in our denial of the priestly function of the church. As a matter of fact, we deny all three. The prophetic, the priestly, and the kingly function of the church because we deny, the church, we deny Christ as the head of the church who is prophet, priest, and king. And we do so because we really don't live as brethren. We don't love his brethren. And as a result, Satan has sifted us as wheat. 
we have become the prey of Satan who walks about as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And since we do not have the ministry of reconciliation, we have been devoured. Father, we thank you for your love to us, even though we are sinners, even though we are unfaithful, even though we have made a mess of so many things in this world. We pray that you would help us to be reconciled to you and to one another, and that we would go forth into this world working to reconcile this world to you. As Paul said, we have been given this ministry of reconciliation, of reconciling the world, the work that you are doing. We pray that you would help us to be engaged in that work. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.